0: Hello, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to cover Dr. Harvey Cushing, considered the father of American neurosurgery. His accomplishments are legendary, and as you'll see in this podcast, almost hard to believe could be achieved in a single lifetime. He essentially single handedly launched neurosurgery into a separate specialty, making operating on the brain possible and safe for the first time in history. In fact, I found so much interesting material on Dr. Cushing that one podcast wouldn't do it justice. So, we'll tackle his story in two parts. Let's get started on the first of two episodes on Harvey Cushing on Legends of Surgery. In this first episode, we'll talk about Harvey Cushing's early life and education, his medical training both at Harvard and Johns Hopkins, as well as the obligatory trip to Europe that all medical men of his day seemed to take. It was during his training that he established himself and laid the groundwork for the foundation of a new specialty, neurosurgery, which would be the focus of his entire career. In the second episode, We'll talk about his career and professional triumphs at Johns Hopkins and Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston and Harvard, his time in World War I as a trauma surgeon, and his final career achievements. So let's begin. Harvey Williams Cushing was born on April 8, 1869, the youngest of 10 children to Dr. Henry Kirk Cushing and Betsy Maria Williams Cushing. He was born into a medical family, as his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were all physicians before him, all general practitioners, and one of his older brothers would become a physician too. His place of birth was Cleveland, Ohio, which at the time was part of the Western Reserve, a portion of land that the colony of Connecticut retained of a large area that had been granted by King Charles II in 1662. So for those of you that have heard of Case Western Reserve University, it derives its name from this and was originally Western Reserve University, later merging with Case Institute of Technology. Anyways, Harvey had, from all accounts, a good childhood in a reasonably well-off family. He was fond of baseball and gymnastics in high school, he once broke his arm doing gymnastics, which his father reduced and splinted. Some sources comment that since he went to the Cleveland Manual Training School, which focused on manual dexterity, this contributed to his success as a surgeon. In the spring of 1887, Cushing went to Chicago to write the Yale entrance exam. He passed and started at the age of 18 at Yale University, which had just changed its name from Yale College. Now interestingly, Yale was already 185 years old when he started there. It was founded in 1701 chartered by the Connecticut Colony as the Collegiate School, moving to New Haven, Connecticut in 1716, and in 1718 changed the name to Yale College. It was named after Elihu Yale, a governor of the British East India Company, who had provided a hefty donation to the school, which was the proceeds from the sale of nine bales of goods, 417 books, and a portrait of King George I. Cushing got a Bachelor of Arts degree at Yale and was a solid B student. He enjoyed his time on campus getting involved in a number of extracurricular activities He continued his interest in baseball, making the freshman team as a shortstop, and then becoming a regular on the senior team. Cushing jokingly called himself the human sieve, once making five of Yale's 13 errors in a single game, and was later moved to outfield. But he was a consistent hitter, batting .286 in 1889, which placed him fifth in the league, one of the years Yale won the college league title. Cushing actually broke the little finger of his left hand during a game, and would have a deformed knuckle for the rest of his life. He also enjoyed the social aspects of college, joining the Scroll and Key Society in 1890, not to be confused with Yale's other society, Skull and Crossbones. Scroll and Key dates back to 1842 and is a so-called secret society, allowing 15 juniors to join each year to participate in its activities and carry on its traditions, and even has its own hall on campus. After graduating from Yale in 1891, Cushing started at Harvard Medical School in September, following in the footsteps of his older brother, Ned. By this time, he was feeling the weight of family expectations, he even put up pictures in his room of the three living Cushing doctors, his grandfather, father, and brother. His attitude towards education at this time changed, becoming a far more serious student, and he quickly got involved at the Massachusetts General Hospital, or MGH for short. This is where the ether dome resides, and it's interesting to think that Cushing himself would have sat in that theater watching surgery. Speaking of ether, at the time of his training, there were no formal anesthesiologists yet, but rather it was given to patients during surgery by any physician. Cushing himself got involved early, providing ether as early as the first month of his training. One of his first marks on medicine came about from one of these events. In 1893, he was providing ether to a patient at MGH with a strangulated hernia, meaning a hernia that can't be pushed back in, and the blood supply to the trap bowel within the hernia is cut off, which is an emergency. The patient died during the surgery, and this affected him deeply. He was so disturbed that he wanted to quit medicine. Luckily for the world, he didn't. But rather noted that there was a lack of monitoring in the OR, so he and fellow student Amory Codman developed the first continuous record for recording pulse and breathing rate, hoping that monitoring vital signs during operations would prevent deaths. This was the so-called ether chart, and some say it revolutionized anesthesia practice. His journals and letters at this time portray a hard-working and dedicated student, but also show that he was human, and like most students went through periods of self-doubt and stress. Cushing actually became a heavy smoker during this time, a habit that he kept up for the rest of his life. He was driven and a perfectionist and very hard on himself, but this led to him passing with A's and in fact received the first perfect grade ever given in advanced anatomy at Harvard. He graduated cum laude from Harvard Medical School in 1895 and in typical Cushing fashion, missed his own graduation ceremony because he was on duty at the hospital. His intern year from 1895 to six, was spent living and working at MGH, where he was appointed to the South Surgical Service doing general surgery work. He then went on to Johns Hopkins in 1896 to assume a post as surgeon-in-residence to train under William Stuart Halsted. At the time, it was a relatively new school with a new approach to training, and Halstead was trying to reestablish his career after struggling with drug addiction. For more on that fascinating story, check out Podcast 35. Now, Early in Cushing's career, he was involved with x-rays, so let's take a quick look at that history before getting into Cushing's story about it. For those that don't know, x-rays were discovered in 1895 by German scientist Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen. He noticed a previously undiscovered type of ray, almost by accident, which could pass through human tissue, but not bone or metal. In late 1895, he famously took the first x-ray of a human body part, an image of his wife Bertha's hand. I'll put up a picture on Twitter. Her response to seeing the pictures? Quote, I have seen my death, end quote. Pretty macabre. Since the nature of the radiation was a mystery to Rontgen, he dubbed them X rays. The medical world immediately recognized their usefulness, and in 1897, X rays were being used in the battlefield during the Balkan War by doctors to locate bullets in wounded soldiers. Rontgen would win the first Nobel Prize in Physics for his discovery. Cushing was part of that initial frenzy over X rays and helped to secure an apparatus for MGH's outpatient service when he was an intern there. His friend Amory Codman, the same one of ether chart fame, was then specializing in orthopedic surgery and suffered radiation burns from using it so much in his enthusiasm. In 1897, Cushing described the case of a young woman with a shotgun wound in her neck and had damage to the spine. The bullet was localized through the use of x-rays and he offered the case as his first presentation at the Johns Hopkins Medical Society in May of 1897. By this time, Cushing was getting more accustomed to Hopkins and was developing relationships with the staff, including some of the founding fathers. He became close with William Osler, a Canadian I might add, who was the first professor of medicine there and developed a deep admiration and respect for his mentor. Cushing would go on to adopt his love of books, and Osler became a father figure to him, advancing his career at Hopkins. He would later live next door to the Oslers, and William would be godfather to his firstborn. And his relationship with one of the other founders, William Halstead, was less ideal. Halstead's surgical technique, emphasizing gentle handling of tissues, precise hemostasis or controlling of bleeding, attention to minute details, impressed Cushing, and he would take on the meticulous and careful approach to neurosurgery. But Halstead was an absentee mentor and notoriously difficult to track down, often leaving the hospital unannounced without operating or rounding on patients, probably due to his morphine addiction. Now he was not absent for one crucial patient though, Cushing himself. In the afternoon of September 28, 1897, the Hopkins team took out Cushing's appendix, a relatively new procedure. Dr. Charles McBurney proposed his muscle splitting operation in 1893, just four years earlier. They'd only done a handful of the surgeries, but this one was done by doctors Halstead, Finney, and Bloodgood. During Cushing's recovery, the abdominal wound broke down and a minor infection developed, and so the suturing had to be redone. Halstead used heavy silver wire sutures subcutaneously to close the abdomen, and for years Cushing could feel his chief's handiwork under his skin. After taking a few months off, he returned to be the day-to-day head of surgery, doing all manner of cases, including one that allowed him to return the favor to his chief. In 1898, Halstead's wife, Carolyn, was badly injured when a horse ran away with her carriage, and Cushing operated on her for a fractured pelvis and other injuries in their home. Halstead himself was away at a medical meeting, so I guess you could consider the score even. Anyways, during his residency, Cushing had a number of highlights. He did the first splenectomy at Johns Hopkins, implemented his Boston ether charts in the OR, and experimented with cocaine as a local anesthetic. Part of his motivation may have been to eliminate the need for an assistant to operate the ether mask, many of whom had little experience and were not up to Cushing's demanding standards. Interestingly, the record indicates that he did not know about Halstead's earlier experiences with cocaine. One of his major uses for cocaine was in hernias, and by 1899, hernia surgery under cocaine anesthetic became the procedure of choice at Hopkins. Now, this brought him some international recognition as well, as many centers adopted this practice. And his work on freezing peripheral nerves led him to his first real impact on neurosurgery, itself a gateway to his later work on his operations on the brain. This was the treatment of trigeminal neuralgia, also known as tic de la rue. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. So, the name is French and means, quote, painful tic or twitch, end quote, as in a facial tic. But that is underselling it. It is a severe stabbing or electric shock-like pain on one side of the face that comes from one of the nerves that supplies sensation to the face, the trigeminal nerve. The pain is so intense that it makes patients wince, hence the tick part. It can last seconds to minutes and is considered one of the most painful conditions out there. Patients are often near suicidal when they present, or at least when they presented to Cushing, and it was even called the suicide disease. Although others had attempted operating on the nerve root near the brain, With variable success and often excessive bleeding from the middle meningeal artery that runs nearby, Cushing modified the operation to take a more basal or lower approach, so-called infra-arterial, avoiding this artery and making it much safer. In 1895, the mortality rate for this operation before Cushing was 22.5%. By the late 1920s, Cushing's mortality rate was down to 0.2%. Cushing first practiced his new technique on cadavers before attempting it on live patients. His first success was December 17, 1899, on a 55-year-old former businessman who'd suffered for more than a decade. After the operation, the patient was perfectly well, and Cushing kept in touch with him until at least 1908 with no recurrence. His story became sensationalized by the media, with one paper calling his innovation, quote, probably the most daring operative procedure ever attempted by a surgeon, end quote. That's a bit of hyperbole, but these operations really did change people's lives. Cushing first published on it in 1900 and would continue to do the operation throughout his career, with some modifications. A number of letters that he received from patients often years after the operation demonstrate their immense gratitude to him. So eventually it became time for Cushing to spread his wings and leave the confines of his place of training to learn at the feet of the masters of the old world. He left for Europe on june twenty third, nineteen hundred, at the age of thirty one. First touring London and Paris, Cushing watched some of the European masters operate, but was not too impressed finding them disrespectful of patients and lacking in surgical technique. Now, he did seem more impressed by Caesar Rue, C-Podcast 40 on Rue, but was still unsatisfied. November of that year, he arrived in Bern, Switzerland, to spend time with Theodore Coker, a C-Podcast 28 on Nobel Prize-winning surgeons. He had mixed feelings about the experience, as he again was less impressed by the surgical technique of one of the masters, but had arranged to work in the lab, which was more fruitful. Coker was busy preparing his work that would eventually lead to him being the first surgeon to win the Nobel Prize in 1909, and so Cushing visited Hugo Kronecker, a distinguished professor of physiology and pioneer in blood pressure studies. His work in the lab was using dogs and sometimes monkeys, increasing what is known as the intracranial pressure, or pressure inside the skull, and then studying the effects of that pressure on blood vessels. Cushing noted that elevated intracranial pressure was associated with an increase in the blood pressure, and did the early work on this. Now bear with me. I'm going to read you Cushing's original description of his findings. Quote, it is ordinarily stated that fatal symptoms originate when the intracranial pressure approaches or reaches the height of the arterial tension. The fact that the arterial tension is a varying quantity which regulates itself so as to overcome the effects of the increased intracranial pressure seems never to have received attention. A simple and definite law may be established, namely that an increase of intracranial tension occasions a rise of blood pressure which tends to find a level slightly above that of the pressure exerted against the medulla, end quote. So in simpler terms, things that cause increased pressure in the skull, like bleeding from a head injury or stroke, cause the blood pressure to go up, as well as slowing of the breathing rate and heart rate. This is sort of a last ditch effort by the body to maintain blood flow to the brain and is very bad. Usually this means that brain herniation, where the brain is squeezed across structures in the skull is imminent and is typically fatal unless the intracranial pressure is relieved. In fact, this phenomenon had been described in German articles 20 years prior, but his contribution was to record the brain's reaction to compression more carefully than previous researchers. He would go on to publish a report on the regulation of blood pressure in the setting of increased intracranial pressure in June of 1901, and this would become known as the Cushing reflex or Cushing response. That following summer, he returned to England and worked with physiologist and neurologist Charles Sherrington in Liverpool. Cushing only spent a few weeks there, and learned about his work doing cerebral localization, or mapping, on primates, studies on the brain's motor and sensory functions. This figuring out which parts of the brain control what would become very important in localizing brain tumors in an age before imaging that could see inside the skull. Towards the end of his European tour, Cushing stopped at a hospital in Pavia, Italy, where doctors were measuring blood pressure of patients with a homemade inflatable cuff invented by Scipione Rivarocci. He sketched the instrument in his travel diary and arranged to take one home. I remember when I found out as a medical student that a blood pressure cuff, or more accurately, the whole apparatus for measuring blood pressure, was called the sphygmomanometer. I only discovered the meaning of that word while researching this podcast. So sphygmo in Greek is for pulse, and manometer means a pressure meter. So now you know. Dr. Cushing recognized its value in monitoring surgical patients, maybe because of his earlier experience losing a patient under ether. He would later introduce its regular use into the OR, and like the old story goes with the introduction of change in medicine, other surgeons initially balked at the idea, thinking that a physician's trained finger on a patient's pulse was of more use than the data produced by the, quote, confound contraption, end quote. Cushing would publish a paper in 1903 on the routine determination of blood pressure during surgery in clinics, and it has been said that his introduction of a device for recording blood pressure to North America was one of his greatest contributions to medicine. While in Europe, Dr. Cushing received a letter from Dr. Halstead offering him the, quote, surgery of the nervous system, end quote, at Johns Hopkins when he returned. Arriving in Baltimore in September of 1901, he began his career as an associate surgeon at Johns Hopkins and solely focused on neurosurgery. This would be the beginning of one of the greatest surgical careers in history. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we'll launch the professional career of Dr. Harvey Cushing, looking at his time at Johns Hopkins as a staff man and his time at the Bent Brigham Hospital in Harvard, his wartime experiences, and the end of his career and his legacy. For now, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening.